Today we are continuing through Nicaea by going through um, the next line of our creed, which is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And right out the gate, I'll say that we're not going to focus too heavily on generation or the eternality of the Son, but more so on Son of God and whether or not that has any divine prerogative to it. Um, And the reason why is because generation will be more fitting for the begotten, not made episode, uh, which is a couple episodes from now. Um, So whenever we get to this section, um, or whenever we get to the section of biblical support for Jesus as the Son of God, we'll flesh out more usages of the Son of God in the Old and New Testament. But for the early church, the discussions about Jesus as the Son of God really did center around Jesus as the only begotten or only unique Son of God. Uh, The question was not whether or not the Son of God appears in Scripture, because um, it certainly did, and everyone recognized that. The question was, uh, did this uniqueness of the Son in relation to God the Father mean that Jesus was eternally divine? Um, So in the first half of this clause, we find the uniqueness of the Son being emphasized, the only Son of God. In the second half of the clause, we find eternally begotten, which designates the Son relationship to the Father as eternal so the first clause can actually find some agreement with the Arians because um, they could affirm that Jesus was the Son of God. But this would also um, counter some ideas of Gnostic teachings because rather than saying that Jesus was merely one of many saints, mediaries, or angelic powers, it pointed to the uniqueness of Jesus as the only Son of God. He is unique uh, and divine. Now, for the Arians... Uh, they could agree that Jesus was true, uh, unique, and divine, and the Son of God, but the question was, in what sense? And that's where you find uh, the next clause, the eternally begotten of the Father. Uh, We mentioned that the Arians would believe in degrees of divinity, and so Jesus could be divine um, and not be eternal or be true God. And we'll get to that in the next episode when we get to God from God, light from light, true God from true God. But As we mentioned before, eternal generation becomes a major discussion here. Um, And when the early church would speak about generation of the Son, as the Son proceeding from the Father's being, it logically placed the Son in a um, number, numerical sequence, right? You'd have first the Father and then the Son. And the Arians would ultimately press this and say, well, how can you have first the Father and then the Son second um, if he... Uh, how can he be truly eternal or truly God if he is second from God the Father? So the Arians would then teach that the Logos, or Jesus, was a semi-divine being uh, in a similar divinity of the Father, but not of the same divinity of the Father. So for the Arians, the Logos was a God, but not the God. Um, he was an honorary deity or an agent created by the Father who shared in a closeness to God, but because of his devotion. And again, we talked about that um, emphasis on the freedom of the will of the Logos in the Arian position. So in essence, the Arians claim that Jesus was not an eternal being, 
for the Arians, there was a time when Jesus was not in existence. And Nicene Christians would point out that uh, there was no place for an honorary or secondary deity in the Bible. Um, to say that the Son of God was not eternal was to say that he was a creature. And if he was divine, he must be eternal by necessity of divine nature. Um, Athanasius is actually famously noted as going around and altering the Arian slogan. The Arian slogan would be on the walls of cities saying there was um, a time when the Logos was not. And Arius, or Athanasius would insert there was never a time when the Logos was not, which is kind of funny. But the primary point was that within the Old Testament, there is one God who gets honor and glory and majesty and the credit, so to speak. And so an honorary secondary deity who is also not eternal and doesn't have that fundamental nature of eternality um, wasn't possible. And so the, the Christians would also make much of the nature of the Son being brought forth by a father and sharing in the nature of the Father. We talked about that a little bit. And then the Arians also had this disconnect between their confession and their practice. Uh, and it became a point of contention or a point of fact, really, for the Nicenes to point out that, well, the Arians are participating in idolatry if they believe what they say they believe because they still worshipped Jesus in their services. And so if Jesus was not truly God, then he should not be worshipped, and they were committing idolatry. Um, and really, you still see this disconnect um, in the Jehovah's Witnesses prior to 1954 in particular, because now, um, after 1954, they said that Jesus shouldn't be worshipped. But before 1954, all the founders taught that you should worship Jesus, and he had rightful uh, worship, um, and it was right for the apostles and the people to worship Jesus. And then they flipped the switch on that, and now it's it's idolatry. Um, so that they, they corrected the mistake of the early Arians. Um, so Gregory, the theologian, in his oration uh, 29, he speaks about generation of the Son. He says, well, when did this happen in terms of generation? Um, and he said, well, when did the Father come to be? He said, well, there was never a time when he was not. The same applies to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Ask me again, and I shall answer you. When was the Son begotten? When the Father was not begotten. So the Father and the Son are both eternal. Uh, when did the Spirit proceed? When the Son did not proceed, but was begotten timelessly in a way we cannot understand. And from here he goes on to talk about how whenever we're using terms like before, when, um, originally, or pre-existence, uh, we have a hard time not thinking of time and temporal, but we can't measure um, deity by that because that's beyond time. So without beginning implies eternal, yes, but eternal does not necessarily imply without beginning, seeing that these beings are referred to the Father as their origin. Uh, thus, they are not without beginning in respect to cause, because the Father is the, the spring, but it is clear that the cause is not necessarily prior, to t um, prior in time to its effects. Um, so he uses, again, the sunlight analogy, that the sun um, always has its sunlight. The sun is not prior to the sunlight. Um, and so basically he's saying that our understanding of time causes issues here, but that having a cause does not mean that you have a beginning per se. Um, and Athanasius kind of speaks the same way and against the Arians on 124 to 25. He says, uh, was God who is ever without reason, was he who is light without radiance, or was he who was always the father 
without the word? Who can endure to hear them say that God was ever without reason or that God was not always Father? God is eternally. Thus, since the Father always is, his brightness exists eternally, and that is his word. Again, God who is has um, derived from himself the word who also is. The word has not supervened from previous non-existence, nor was the Father once without reason or the word. And from here, Athanasius um, is similar to Gregory in using the Son. And so within its historical context, this phrase of the creed really centered around the eternality of the Son of God and his unique position in relation to the Father, and much more would be said um, at Chalcedon in 451. And so moving into biblical support, we're going to focus more so on Jesus as the Son of God um, and then move briefly into the eternality of Jesus. Um, like I said, we'll talk about that more later on. So Jesus as the Son of God deserves attention uh, because it appears throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament um, really shapes how we should understand the Son of God as a title in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, uh, Son of God denotes this idea of divine sonship. And so we see this idea with angelic beings, the people of Israel, the king of Israel, and of course, David and those who came after David. So the divine sonship of kings is highlighted uh, whenever you look at the New Testament in particular to Jesus's role. But um, first, the king as God's son had a number of meanings. In 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16 is a good um, frame or reference for this. It says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you also see this in the Psalms in a number of ways, especially the Messianic Psalms. Uh, but the reality is that the king here acts as God's agent who exercises authority on earth as a representative for God. And the king is also considered to be the heir and the recipient of God's inheritance to which um, these concepts can really be seen in Psalm 2 in particular. Now, this divine sonship is seen as metaphoric in the Old Testament, uh, and this is contrasted to the divine sonship of other nations. Um, and it also makes way for the eternal son, the, the legitimate divine son, to arrive in the New Testament. Now, the second temple period... Um, or even the texts that appear before Matthew, are very interesting. Uh, you see a lot of messianic texts here in terms of the Son of God, this idea of the pre-existent uh, divine Son of God, but really with the sonship in Roman culture, uh, the Son of God would be used for Roman emperors. But it wasn't this idea of divinity upon the Roman emperor, but rather they're associated with the deified Julius Caesar, and so the emperor would be called a type of son of God. And so in some way, there's this subversive idea whenever Jesus is the son of God in that particular culture, he's saying that he's the legitimate son of God, while Julius Caesar is not, uh, nor the emperor. And of course, for transparency, it's worth noting that there's a lot of discussion about the idea of subversion in the Roman Empire and stuff like that. So um, I tend to take a balanced view where... It's both and, not either or, in terms of whether or not they're subversive or non-subversive language. Um, but that's really kind of off topic here. 
But um, so with that discussion framed, we can actually circle back um, to the New Testament, right? So John stresses the importance of this title. Um, in John 20, 31, he says that he wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's Messiah, the Son of God. Now, as we already mentioned, there's this typological aspect where it's applied to the people of Israel and then to the king, especially David and the seed of David in the Old Testament. And so whenever we look at um, Jesus, Jesus invests this title with a deeper meaning. He is the king because he is the Messiah, because he is the son of the father. Uh, and so there you see this the typology being fulfilled. Um, Stephen Wellam in God the Son Incarnate, when speaking on the title of Son of God, he makes this distinction between the functional and ontological nature of the title. So ontological being nature and functional being that which is fulfilled. So uh, Jesus is the Son of God functionally in that he fills these typological f- figures, right? He's the second Adam. He's David's greater son. Uh, and he takes on the incarnation. He takes on human flesh. He lives obedient until death. And he gives, uh, and that gives him this title of son. But there's also this ontological by nature aspect that is the other side of this coin Um, Stephen Willem says, by virtue of who he is, Jesus has been the Son of God from eternity. In fact, Jesus' eternal sonship provides the basis for his incarnational and redemptive sonship. So this is to say that Jesus' eternal sonship is the reason why Jesus is the Son of God rather than a mere type. He is a fulfillment of the type because he was... The, the, the blueprint of the type that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is no longer a metaphorical divine son that we saw in the Old Testament, but he is the divine son in the flesh. So the two understandings, again, is this functional or fulfillment-oriented understanding of the Son of God and the ontological or by nature understanding. So there's this threefold understanding of Jesus as the Son of God, the messianic sense, the Trinitarian sense, and the incarnational sense. In the first, we have the description of Christ as Messiah, which falls into a functional category, right? He is the Messiah, the King. And Jesus, as the Son of God, the Messiah, is the heir and representative. Um, And there's the sense conveyed throughout the scriptures that there's the Trinitarian sense, and that is his pre-existent sonship, which will be discussed further here um, in a second. But the third sense is the obvious incarnational sense, in which we can see this directly in the Gospel of Luke, right? Whenever Jesus called the Son of the Most High in Luke 132, or Holy, the Son of God in Luke 135. So looking at this ontological, this by nature understanding, the Gospels, we see this really playing out quite a bit um, in terms of Jesus' understanding of himself in relation to God the Father. So Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, there's this awareness of this reality, um, even by Satan, at his temptation, right, in Matthew 4.3. And Paul notes that Jesus is God's son from heaven in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And then if we move to texts like John 17.5, where it reads, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Then there's a significant reality of pre-existence and pre-existence with the Father being the Father. So what we see is not only a relationship prior to creation, but also a sharing in the Father's glory uh, but then whenever we look at the Old Testament with texts like Isaiah 42.8, where it says, I am the Lord, this is my name, and my glory I give to no other, uh, nor my praise to a carved idol, 
then we find that, well, this is the divine son. Um, of course, this reality doesn't end with a single text. Um, in John 16, 28, you read, I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and I am now leaving the world and going to the Father. So you have this pre-existence. I came from the Father, and then I have come into this world, so the Incarnation. And so there's that relationship with the Father prior, and then he comes into the world in the Incarnation, and now I am leaving this world and going back to the Father, going back to his relationship as it was pre-existed, but now, of course, with the human nature. And of course, those statements, I came from, and I'm going back to, are very significant for all of these uh, discussions. Further, the Son makes the Father known in the Gospels because he is the image of the Father, and that's a theme that continues really throughout John's Gospel um, especially, but we also see it in Colossians and Hebrews. And so our main sticking point, though, uh, rather than the image of the Father, is that um, the takeaway here is that Jesus is the Son of God prior to his taking on of the flesh. In the Old Testament, shadows were shadows of Jesus, the actual divine Son. Um, an observation made by many is Jesus' own address of God as Abba. And in many respects, scholars have noted that in most instances, Jews wouldn't use this term because of fear and reverence for God's holiness. While some have debated this notion, uh, it's still clear that Jesus refers to God as his Father in a familiar and intimate manner. Uh, and introducing instructions for prayer, he opens with our Father, right? Matthew 6, 9. And he instructs Mary to tell others that he is ascending to my Father and to your Father, John 20, 17. Uh, Wellam Notes later in scripture, Paul says that Christians, as adopted sons of God, are free to call God Abba, see Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, but it's only through Jesus that it's possible. In other words, it is only because we are united by faith to the Son that we have access to the Father by the Spirit. So it's through the work of Jesus that we can be called children of God through the concept of adoption, be united to the divine Son. Within the Gospel of Mark, we see the title Son of God, Used about eight times, uh, God has addressed his father about four times. Mark's emphasis is really on the title Son of Man, uh, which I'm going to bring up later. But it could be argued that Mark's focus is heavily on the messianic identity and authority of Jesus while sonship is implied. In Matthew, divine sonship is prominent, and it adds ten occurrences that refer to Jesus as God's son. And I think I count 37 occurrences where God is referred to as the Father. Matthew seems to expand on what Mark has expressed in that the divine agent of the Father um, is, is exercising authority. And this is especially noted in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then whenever we move to Luke's Christology, you find less focus on divine sonship than Mark and Matthew, but um, the divine sonship is still present. Luke's focus is more on the messianic kingship of Christ in complete obedience and divine agency which again, by extension, has implications for the Son of God motif. And of course, um, some have argued that Luke has this emphasis on the intimacy between Jesus and the Father, as Luke includes the emphasis on Jesus' prayer life in Luke 5.16, in which we read that Jesus withdraws to desolate places to pray to the Father. Uh, and this can also be seen in 6.12, 9.18, 9.28, and 11.1. So this unique emphasis is seen um, especially in Jesus' crying out on the cross in Luke 23, 34, and 46, while include, including the intimacy in his youth in Luke 2, 49, that has that awareness of sonship. John's gospel is loaded with divine sonship that, um, I mean, 
John's Gospel is considered one of the central uh, Christological books of the New Testament. And in the Gospel, Jesus is called the Son of God about 20 times, while God is referred to as Father well over 100 times. Uh, John stresses this relationship quite a bit, and he expands on the personal nature between the Father and the Son while discussing the eternality of Jesus' Sonship in many texts, uh, most famously being John 1, 1 through 18, and 17, 5, and then John chapter 14, etc. One of the most compelling texts on the subject is John 5, 16 through 30, where Jesus is discussing the Sabbath after healing a crippled man. The context is that Jesus has just approached a man who has been ridden, uh, bedridden for a long time, and Jesus implores him to take up his bed and walk, to which the man who is now healed does so. And we're told at the end of the verse 9 that this was on the Sabbath. And after the discourse, we read the man who had been healed went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And the Jews were persecuting Jesus in verse 16 because he had healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus replied, my father is working until now and I am working, verse 17. Verse 18 is very telling in terms of what the Jews were thinking about this statement. Uh, verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in this time, rabbis taught that God worked continuously without breaking the Sabbath um, because God... Uh, God's providence and domain demands is sustaining the universe. And so Jesus makes himself equal to God and saying that he can work on the Sabbath as God does, or as, as his Father does in his own words. And within this text, we see Jesus pressing on further and notes that the Son does what he sees the Father doing and that he does what the Father does in verse 19. And he roots it in the love of the Father towards the Son, verse 20. Uh, Jesus further notes that the Father has given authority to the Son and honor to the Son, uh, quote, just as they honor the Father, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, in verse 24. So there are m really many observations that can be made about this particular text, um, such as the clear distinction between the Father and the Son and the love between them. But we should note that Jesus points out that he is the intimate Son of God and that he and the Father do not compete, but work together to accomplish the work. And then from here, Jesus claims uh, that which is exclusive to God for himself. He says he has the power to raise the dead in verse 21, to judge in verse 22, to receive honor in verse 23, and to give life in verse 25. So Jesus' discourse really just continues on, uh, but this kind of suffices for um, this particular discussion. But the Jews knew exactly what Jesus meant whenever he said this, and they sought to kill him because of this. Jesus digs in and claims honor that the Father has, uh, something that indeed was solidified uh, the charges that the Jews were saying that he was making himself equal to God. Now, to survey all of these instances where Jesus is called the Son of God would be quite remarkable uh, and would take a lot of time. Um, but hopefully this was um, sufficient in that it presents that ontological and functional sense and gives you that fuller, uh, fuller picture of what it means to be the Son of God, not just the ontological uh, Son of God in terms of his relationship before the world, but also in terms of the divine sonship and kingship aspects as well. With this ontological sense in mind, we can understand the arguments that the Nicene Christians made in regards to the relationship between uh, the Father and the Son, especially whenever it came to um, the discussion on the creator and creation distinction that the Arians would try to make. No, no, this is the Son of the Divine Father, not a creature. And whenever it came to the idea of the necessity of Christ's eternality to be divine, we find that the Son shares in the Father's eternality. 
Uh, and John 1 with 3 is, you know, one of the big texts on that, and that it notes that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, so here the divine Son is present with the Father at creation, and not a single thing came into being apart from the Son, which would contradict the notion of the Son being a created creature. Uh, just as well, we see texts like John 12, 41, which notes that Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne while he's citing Isaiah's vision in the throne room of God uh, that we know from Isaiah 6. Um, and John 12, 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, and it's right after he quotes Isaiah 6. Uh, so this idea of Jesus as the means by which creation was created can also be found in Hebrews 1, 2, Colossians 1 as well. Um, we find that the Son shares in the glory of the Father before the world existed in John 17, 5, as we noted. And we'll speak more to the eternality of the Son later on, especially in Colossians and how that one's used, and we'll speak to generation. Um, but the sticking point here is the divine and unique sonship of the Son, and of course how we understand the Father because we've seen the Son and because of the Son's deity. So having a lesser God which shares in the glory of the Supreme God um, and receives crown, adornment, and worship is to delegate the seat of God to a creature, which is what the Aaron's essentially did. Um, our application here will be brief. Our application is really on adoption. Athanasius and against the Arians 319 states, although there be one son by nature, true and only begotten, we too become sons, not as he is in nature and truth, but according to grace of him that calls. So we spoke in our episode on the Father that not all are children of God, but we spoke in a more polemical tone against the notion that we're all children of God. But here we have the reality of adoption in particular, um, and what that means in regards to salvation. So adoption is that glorious reality of being brought into the household of God as sons and daughters because of the work of Christ. It's because Jesus is the Son of God and our participation in Christ that we are children of God as well by extension. In Galatians 3, uh, 23 through 26, we find this more clearly stated. Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Um, it is in this union with Christ where we find our adoption as God's children and given the right to call the Father our Father. When we are united to Christ, we enter into this participation with the triune God. In 1 John 3, 1 through 2 states, uh, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, really, there's a lot of facets and discussions when it comes to union with Christ and the blessings of Christ's work. So narrowing it down can be problematic at times, but we're going to try our best here. Typically, there's an emphasis in terms of adoption on the legal aspects of adoption. But there's also this personal relationship that must be noted when we speak about adoption. We can now relate to God as a good and loving father. And we are no longer slaves, but sons, according to Galatians 4, 7. The Holy Spirit cries out and bears witness that we are in the family of God, Romans 8, 15 through 16. We also find that those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, according to Romans 8, 14. As unlikely as it is, discipline is a blessing we receive as children of God. See Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. Being children of God, of course, is not only to speak of our relationship to God, but to all of those who are also united to Christ as 
uh, they are adopted too. So we now have brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this bond, this unity of being together in Christ's body that cannot be broken. Additionally, we are called beloved children who have access into the Father's presence. Uh, and you see Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And we are also heirs of the kingdom, sharing in the glory of Christ, according to Romans 8, 17. Adoption is a great study of soteriology that will fill you uh, with joy and appreciation for the work of the triune God and redemption. So that's it for this episode of Through Nicaea. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.